We want our kids to think like biologists, like like scientists, like engineers, like architects, you know, like business owners, whatever the project is. Teacher is responsible when the child is ready for being able to find evidence that they understand those skills. At the very least, in the personal statement, is what is your story? Like, what was your passion or interest? How did that progress? How did you use that, you know, to make to make an impact? Hello and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Ford, and today we have a wonderful guest on our show, Kyle Wagner, who positions himself as a learning experience co-designer. Kyle uses project-based learning as a vehicle to drive innovative change in education and pedagogy and have deeper learning experiences for students and really all stakeholders within the school community. I saw him speak recently at the ReLearn Festival where he spoke about mini schools and his experiences with setting up the Futures Academy at the International School of Beijing. The lessons learned, the successes, the failures, the opportunities, and everything that goes along with driving innovation within a large uh, and established school. This is something I've been thinking about a lot recently about how to drive innovation within a school should we try to change from within? Should we try to just set up a brand new school? Or there is this middle ground of having a mini school, a school within a school that allows us to draw from resources internally, as well as get the best out of what exists and taking advantage of some of the opportunities in the way education is moving forward from a progressive point of view. I was part of a hackathon at the ReLearn Festival where I proposed the idea of an incubator, a mini school or a brand new school that would drive the spirit of social entrepreneurship with students, and that can be found on the Coconut Thinking website under videos. Kyle has really uh, pushed my thinking, illuminated what uh, it could be in terms of possibilities and, and, and thinking about resistance points and how we can get people on board to drive change. This is a great conversation. I will put a word of warning out. There's a little bit where there is a uh, a bit of an internet disconnect where we lose a little bit of the conversation, but it only lasts a minute. So I'm going to ask you to kindly power through it because I think the rest of the conversation is well worth it. So in the meantime, I will leave space for my conversation with Kyle. Hi, Kyle. Thanks so much for joining us on our show. Just wanted to uh, have the opportunity to, to learn about what you do, some of the, the great things you do. I know you, you're quite, quite a presence on LinkedIn with, with PBL, but there's so much more to you, I get a feeling. I saw you at ReLearn, uh, your fire started presentation. It's actually quite exciting, you know, um, and, and some of the things that you've done at uh, International School of Beijing. Uh, so I just want to start off with the question, who are you, what do you do, and how do you try to make a difference? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on the show and uh, for attending the, uh, the talk at, at ReLearn. So I, I'm calling myself now a learning experience co-designer. So I've, I've changed, as you mentioned. It initially, it was just kind of project-based learning, but I think because project-based learning is just the uh, vehicle that drives a lot of those changes that we're trying to make in school. I think a learning experience co-designer is, is more helpful. And really what I'm, I try to help schools do is uh, create more socially, globally, um, emotionally aware citizens. And again, through, through uh, really well-crafted learning experiences. And again, projects uh, or project-based learning tends to be the vehicle that drives that. I want to get into project-based learning as well and how your vision is for that or how, how you, you work with schools to do so. But first, I have to ask you the question I ask every guest. How do you define learning? <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. Um, so I, I, think, I think learning is just discovering new ways of doing things, discovering new knowledge. So it could be new knowledge. Um, it could be new ways of doing things, new skills. 
that I think help provide better opportunities, pathways, um, I think, and enjoyment in, in life. <laughs> that enjoyment piece yeah. is actually quite a key word in there uh, in terms of learning. Do you think that there's such a thing that's learning that, that doesn't provide enjoyment? Is that possible? Yeah, I, I think when it's forced upon you, right? <laughs> Sometimes, right? Uh, I and, and you know, everybody has a tendency to enjoy some things more than than others. You know, I'm just thinking about some of the work that I do, and you know, I really quite enjoy learning how to you know serve schools in the capacity of like you know making these big shifts, and I like these kind of problems. Um, but then when it comes to a lot of the real details, you know, the nitty gritty, and now it's like, you know, co-developing the curriculum and, all, you know, all the way down to the activities and the minutia, that's learning for sure. And it's very helpful, but I don't find as much enjoyment in that um, as, as other things. So I don't think all uh, learning is equal. I think it's really depending on the, uh, the, the learner themselves in terms of, you know, what they gravitate towards or you know find a knack for for being able to do so then it's it's a question of the learner having such a role to play right and and, and how that i mean you co-design the curriculum i'm saying you're co-designing it i imagine you mean also with the teachers and the learners and all the stakeholders that's involved that are involved yeah yeah precisely so yeah it's it's a, a kind of a community effort and that's where i see learning as being like it's once when it becomes a collective kind of journey together somewhere um, I know there's, you know, a lot of people who are incredibly, uh, you know, independent learners who are very good at that and can have, a, you know, a few resources here and there and just accelerate their pathways by themselves. Um, but I find, you know, when you're with a community and you're sharing that experience together, I think it just accelerates what you're able to learn because you're learning both from resources, but also from the people that you're, you're with as well. So, so how do you see curriculum fitting in this? Because, you know, curriculum is, we have these books of curriculum. This is where we're going to teach year eight. This is where we're going to teach year 10. It's sometimes set in stone or they pretend that it's not, but it is or whatever. How does co-designing and learning experience fit in with a school that might have a set quote unquote curriculum? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it definitely becomes tougher. So, I mean, there's, there's certain curriculums that lend themselves better to more kind of innovative, creative design. You know, I don't really work with a lot of schools that are using the British curriculum, um, you know, or, or they're really guided by the ID uh, CSCs. Um, you know, the IB curriculum I find is a nice framework. You know, I think curriculums are great when they provide frameworks, right? When they're providing a framework for like, here's the conceptual type of understanding and thinking patterns we're trying to get for this subject. The uh, content that you fill it with is up to you. I mean, when I was at High Tech High, um, they basically, you know, I was looking for a guiding point. Like, where do we start this project planning? Like, how do I know where to start? I know I'm a history teacher, but, you know, where would you like me to start? And I remember the guy saying, look, if you teach history and ancient civilizations, we're not going to tell you what to do. It's probably important that you cover the ancient Greeks because they kind of are a, a big foundation for Western democracy. <laughs> but beyond that, you know, it's up to you. So, uh, so I, I like to have a, like a, some kind of framework, right? So if you're developing a project, there's nice kind of frameworks that help guide you. When it comes to curriculum, there's nice thinking patterns you want kids to get in within your subject, right? Those then we can kind of, you know, co-design how to fill that and what kind of content to fill that with. Um, but I think frameworks for curriculum work a lot better. So let's walk through maybe what's one of these projects we'll look. And, and I ask because PBL, I mean, you know, 
start small. You don't have to be like a master gold standard PBL practitioner from day one, but starting little by little. But one of the, the, the challenges with implementation of PBL is that sometimes the project, they, they're, they're missing that authenticity. Let's make a zoo. Totally. We don't have any animals, but we're going to make a zoo anyway. <laughs> how, how do you um, work with teachers, with students, with stakeholders to have a PBL experience that is meaningful and takes them forward in terms of the learning as well as the outcome and beyond? What does it yeah, look like? Well, I mean... I think you touched on it really the authenticity piece, you know, I, it needs to start with something authentic. Um, you mentioned as well, you know, about this whole gold standard, like nobody is a masterful PBL practitioner on the first day. I mean, I've been doing it for so long and there's still so much that I have to learn. But I think the starting point for most schools is to look at what are the authentic issues and not to think of it in terms of like, let's just develop projects that I've seen somewhere else, but really what are the authentic issues and what projects can help get to those. You know, so for example, I've been, I come across this whole community mapping activity um, through someone here that I work with that I think is wonderful. And it's a starting point of just like, let's look around our school and immediately look at what are some of the big issues? What are the partners, potential partnerships and then building projects out of that. So I worked with a school in Florida and, you know, we looked at some potential partnerships with the Audubon society. Um, we looked at some potential uh, partnerships with there's a local cemetery, you know, and how do you honor the people um, who have passed away there? And, you know, they were looking at, you know, how do we modernize it? So these are more questions, right, that kind of start the project process. So I, I think that's a good starting point is looking at community, what kind of issues exist, what potential projects are there to serve that community. So a project I can run you through that we did in Beijing was uh, – Everybody knows, you know, I asked people, what do they think of when they think of China? You know, and there's a couple words that come to mind, you know, and uh, I'd say in terms of problems, right? And most people are like pollution, you know, that's like one of the biggest things. And I was in Beijing, right? The heart of it. So, you know, the question is becomes, you know, how do we help students really in addressing these issues and really give them ownership and agency, but, but have them doing something that they feel like they can actually, you know, tackle and make a difference on. So we looked at our local waterway, um, which was highly polluted. And, you know, it was a very sensitive issue, obviously, in China, because we're an international school. Um, but we had them interviewing villagers, they had them interviewing local shop owners that were right on those kind of banks. Um, we had them taking water samples and trying to find out well, what's really in the water. And the, the big question was, you know, how do we use data to help make a positive impact on our local waterway. And we had everything from students, you know, creating toxic free cosmetics. You know, you had some students creating simple solutions, but they were just, you know, flower shop. They just created, you know, biodegradable flower holders and showed, you know, the impact that would make um, on their shop. And, you know, it would also make an impact on the waterway. We had students working with a local supermarket. And they came up with eco-friendly designs for bags. They collected, you know, old t-shirts from kids at schools and, you know, redesigned those things. So, I mean, some of those projects you can look up on Pinterest, right? Like, and I'm sure those students who did the reusable bags looked up on Pinterest. But the, the difference is every kid's got a different way of answering that big question. The project is not the main focus. The question is a focus. And there's multiple projects that help really address that question. <clears throat> How do the teachers react or, or what are some of the resistance points that you might find when you walk into a school or, or invite into a school, even that process I'm interested in, but what are some of the resistance points that you have and how do you overcome them? 
Yeah, I think I think the resistance points. There's a couple things. One of the resistance points is we've been doing this for a long time. We don't want someone else coming in here telling like, us like, yeah, we get it. We've already been doing it. I mean, I work for an organization right now that is a vocational uh, organization of schools. There's a wide expanse of them, and you know, you work with the design department. Um, and they're, they're doing projects, you know, already like they're working with industry partners. I mean, it's a vocational school. They're trying to get their kids immediately into, you know, these jobs and have internships. So the resistance points there is look, we've been doing this. Like, why are we taking this particular PD, you know, or you get the other end of the spectrum of people who see it as just being, they are doing so many things already as a teacher. I'm barely trying to keep my head afloat. You know, now I'm going into a virtual remote setting and now I'm just trying to learn, learn these tech tools, you know, and really now you want me to, to, to design these, like these kind of experiences. So I get both resistance point. One is, is way too challenging. It's way too overwhelming or one we've been already doing it before. And that's why I try to work internally first with the major kind of stakeholders and and not forcing anything upon anyone with this recent school you know we just did a, a spark session to start things out and said look here's some cool really cool things that some students some teachers are doing in a hybrid environment um what are some cool things you've done and are you interested in learning more about how to set these things up and we had like you know 80 percent of the teachers wanted more you know, as opposed to the leader sets everything up, you know, we talk behind closed doors and then we're like, okay, great. Here's the training. We're all, you're all taking part of it. And we do a fire hose type of thing in the same way that learners don't like to be treated that way. And, and I guess that's, you know, one of the, one of the critical pieces and, and very difficult politically, I imagine. Um, are there, are there ways that you found like that you, that you talk to individual teachers or doing in groups or how does that happen after you go with the leadership and, and, connect with the teachers. Yeah, I try to in the same way, like, you know, any, anyone would do, uh, any business would do, uh, is you try to really get the uh, feedback right away from where people need the most support, right? Like, you know, asking them rather than kind of making the assumption of where they need support. And of course, when you're asking those questions, they're very tailored towards what kind of things that projects would do, right? I mean, like when it comes to assessment um, or it comes to differentiation, you know, and kids having choice, um, when it comes to inquiry, you know, so the questions are kind of tailored towards those things, but you know, those are just good things that are part of instructional design. And when you're asking teachers to identify where they need the most support, and then you're able to work with the leadership team to ensure that the kind of training you're giving are addressing those areas. Um, then I, you know, I think you overcome that resistance right away. I think the walls completely come down. And sometimes I will literally just let teachers share what they're like currently some of the really neat things they're doing, one or two teachers and highlight them. I remember, I remember one time I was at a school and, and the teacher was working, um, with the local, I think, uh, amusement park. And there were, you know, kids were coming up with different designs for the amusement park. And just letting them share and have that stage. I don't think they've ever had that stage internally, you know, with staff, because everyone gets so busy, right? And a lot of teachers might not have known about it. So I think that's helpful as well, is like, let's celebrate where we are and what we've done. Let's identify where we'd like to go. And then let's create some stepping stones to help get there. And I am trying to act a little bit, not as like the bridge that they're stepping over, but 
literally providing the middle managers and leaders and coordinators and, and everyone else kind of with the skill set to be able to kind of lead the rest of the group. And you brought up a word and, and a key point there, assessment. Because I imagine that one of those resistant points is also the how do we assess? How do we figure out, I've been doing it this way. I know that if I give a multiple choice test, you know, I'll get results. Or I know that if I do a writing sample and I look for mechanical things or, or justification of evidence, I know what I've been doing. How do you assess some of these projects where there's so much learning that happens even at a subconscious level? How do you make teachers feel comfortable with the assessment piece? Well, I think the starting point is like they design a few assessments that are just authentic to the project. You know, for this one that they were looking at the air and water quality, like they had to do a field study. And that would be in the same way in which, you know, when you think about lab reports or a detailed, um, you know, uh, field study, students are completing that. And there's so much science that's tied into that. So if teachers can latch on to, okay, a field study, a proposal, and an innovation, you know, that the kids are coming up with and a presentation. Those are four pieces that you can assess that have lots of standards built in. But the difference between those assessments is that they're authentic, right? We want our kids to think like biologists, like, like scientists, like engineers, like architects, you know, like business owners, whatever the project is. And so you ask, well, then what are those people literally doing to show their knowledge um, within, you know, the project? And then that's, um, that's how they're, they're being assessed. So I like to have those as like pieces. Now, I think when you get a little bit more to the farther end of the spectrum, the people who are like really comfortable with informal assessment and observation, that's what you've got to become comfortable with as a teacher. Now, I've just spent some time at a Montessori school for the last few years, and it has been just a, a, a great, great adventure because I watched the way in which Montessori teachers just observe their class. It's when the child's ready, you know, and they've got their little, you know, book and they're, they're, they are responsible. The teacher is responsible when the child is ready for being able to find evidence that they understand those skills. So within a project, if the teacher has, Hey, here are all the skills we're trying to get the project. Here's then the students' names, like in a simple spreadsheet. And, you know, we have a couple built-in assessments, but then there's also other opportunities. Informally, I'm chatting with the student about their project that I'm going to be able to see. Yeah, like, yes, they understand, um, you know, if it's a scientific process. They understand how to use data, quantitative and qualitative data. Okay, so um, I guess that that's then the assessment where it's you're building in the standards within the project. You have a couple pieces of work the kids are producing. And then on the other aside when you become really comfortable, then you can just informally assess uh, through a lot of observation and conversations. And I think those conversations are so important. I mean, how many times are you working with a kid who gives you a piece of work that is not fantastic quality and you sit down and you leave out the answer and they actually get it, but for some reason it doesn't go from their head to their whatever, their hands or, or, or their heart. Um, and, and, and finding comfort in that is, is quite valuable to get just more data. Um, and by data, I mean, you know, just information on their understanding. Yeah. And, and, you know, just to touch on that point as well, you know, one of the major, major components of really, you know, well-constructed project-based experiences is that there's multiple opportunities for feedback, right? You're not one and done. And there's so much of our testing culture that's built around, like, you've got that one shot and you got that one way, like you mentioned, to demonstrate that knowledge. But then you, you say you have that conversation with that kid and all of a sudden you find out, hey, they actually know a lot more. So, 
you know, if you provide those multiple opportunities to assess similar types of skills in multiple ways, in varied ways to do it, you're usually going to draw out from, from that student. And one of the things that I found valuable is in the process of students giving each other feedback, you can learn so much about what a student who is giving the feedback understands simply by the questions that he or she poses, the way that they are understanding and, and, and conceptualizing and, and taking in what the first student is, uh, is putting out there in the performance, but just in the questions that are posed, in the way they're interpreted, in that real live discussion, there, there's so much that we can learn from, uh, from the person who gives feedbacks, understanding of, of the concepts. Yeah, so for sure. So, so I think you hear you mentioning that, you know, the questions that you use in the actual feedback process, you know, is getting at, you know, a lot, a lot more that you're pulling out of that student or even, you know, the questions themselves um, that is helping, you know, this to become a lot more of a collective experience. And, you know, we're not necessarily trained as teachers on how to ask those questions, you know, and even our class, a lot of times, you know, isn't necessarily trained in like, how do you provide feedback? You know, like, that's something that I, I think back to my teacher school and I was like, oh man, I wish I wish I learned like you, you have to learn that through like several iterations. But, you know, how you provide that feedback and what questions you ask to elicit more because at the end, you know, you want the students to own it and want to like literally improve, you know, themselves. And the students providing the feedback themselves means that they're making connections in a place where they might not necessarily be completely familiar. And that's where it becomes real, real, real um, quality thinking. Let's talk about International School of Beijing. I saw, you know, your what you, your talk at WeLearn. Tell us more about that for those who might have missed it. What what did you do for the mini school there, and how did that happen? How was that born? How did it develop? Sure. So, if we try to just make a long story short, um, and you know, if you're watching this particular show or you're listening to this episode, there's there's schools that are trying to make big changes, and I think especially now with COVID. Um, you know, I just talked to a smaller school recently, just this morning, they're able to make those changes because they're quite one teen learners, you know, it's mixed age level, fortunate to be able to have such a small community group. And so International School of Beijing, and this is pre COVID, by the way, this is about five or six years ago, to make some bigger changes in which, you know, kids learn, hold a little bit of project based learn that because there's five key things to create more they partners um, and it's to have real world um, experiences as well they want it to be more I guess aligned with you know what 21st century uh, learning looks like and just overall um, just child folk the key things they want to do it's probably the same but they just felt like with the larger school very hard to to do that make those kind of big changes because the structures, the schedules, um, the teaming patterns. So they wanted to start kind of an accelerated version of a program that could really capitalize on those things. And those could be the core focus of what it did. And they knew project-based learning could drive a lot of those things they wanted to do. So um, they, they reached out to me because, uh, you know, I was at High Tech High. I was already in China at the time and said, hey, you know, would you be interested in helping us do something like this? So I said, sure, we got a team on board. Um, we had 24 students the first year. Uh, in those years, seven students and expanded to 72 the next year. It was initially in a dance studio right outside of the school. 
and then it moved into the school um, into this we built this space in the second floor of the library um, that wasn't being used so imagine as floor-to-ceiling library and then we just built a second floor in there and that became the program that was built around those concepts so the idea is that there was there's a school that started to emerge the school the questions that are going to be asked for anybody who's interested in this is how do you select the students or how do they self-select how do you convince the parents is that that it's uh, that it's that it's viable and um how do i know that the risk i'm putting into this by putting my kid there or my student there is going to pay off how did you get over those barriers yeah so i mean the school looked at those as being very big barriers which is why they hadn't done it for so long because especially in asia and i think most of us know i mean i'm going to draw a very broad stroke but uh in terms of academics you know those become a very, very large focus. You know, you have parents uh, with kids who are six, seven years old, and they're already thinking about their college, you know, your university pathways, the kid's six, you know. So that was a huge barrier to get over. So we had to show that still they were going to get the academics. Um, and so the way that we did that, you know, without having the program in place is we actually held like an elective period. So we said, look, let's actually show what it's going to look like the year before. So the year before we were developing it, we had a whole elective period that was offered called the Futures Academy, you know, sample learning. And it was kind of just for the kids to pilot what it would look like the parents could see firsthand. And the whole challenge was around designing their space for the next year. So we ran it as a project. Um, the kids then were divided up in their different teams. They got to plan out how the space was going to be used and what would really enhance their learning. They then presented it. They worked with some uh, our actual architects um, on campus um, and our finance, finance major to determine what the budget was going to be for that. And they were sold, right? Because they were like, they loved that experience. Like, this is way different. The parents then came to the exhibition and saw, wow, my kids don't usually do that kind of learning. And so that was huge for us. So I would say anyone who's trying to start this, give people a taste of what it looked like rather than just paying lip service to it. The second thing we did is we brought in the big guns from Harvard, uh, from like Stanford, from Yale. These were past graduates of ISB, but they, some of them sat on the admissions panel of these big schools. And the minute they were able to espouse, you know what, these are the kinds of students and the skills that we are looking for. We want a kid to be able to tell a story about a project they did and how they impact the community more than their GPA or the SAT scores. Then the parents were like, okay, where do I sign up? So, I mean, that that was, you know, a tandem force. We showed them what the learning would look like and we brought in, you know, the admissions people from these universities. And so we had 30 something students who applied 24 seats. We just drew a lottery. So we had more applicants and we had spaces for it to start. And that's always a good start. That's amazing. So, so how did you um, even bring in these students to work for that was it, how long was it a week or or they had an hour a week you said so so they had initially for this elective period they had two hours per week and it was spread over um six six different 12 hours so total, 12 and hours then total. they they had different roles and then they presented to the parents to the community to stakeholders and that's when you know they, they, they got to experience it rather than see a presentation about it what about the teachers how did they react um yeah, so there's there's a few different reactions. We hired some people externally, which, I mean, I think the, the team that you get 
is most important at the beginning. Uh, you need to get the right people on board and you need to show success early on, right? Um, parents are, the parents that you get on board are, yes, they are more of those kind of innovative, like let's see how it goes types of parents, but this is their kids for God's sakes. Like, so, so th those teachers, uh, you know, we're fully into it because we got them externally. The internal teachers that were already part of the school, I think saw this as initially it was almost like it felt to them a little bit like maybe a cancer or something on your body or a mole that you're trying to get rid of right because you know it's very it's a very like full frontal saying like okay so everything we've been doing i've been here 10 15 years you don't want us to do that anymore this is the future pathway like and so even though we had one strategic vision for the school and everybody was driving towards that and they were honoring what they're doing, there became a lot of talk about this Futures Academy program. And I feel like the internal perception of the teachers, it, it was not a positive perception um, initially. So, I mean, there's a new number of ways to get over that. But, you know, if anyone's starting something like this out, the perception piece is quite crucial at first we had a great external perception because everyone wanted to know how they could do this at their schools but internally it was very hard to manage you know between an us versus them and you know that i'm going to ask what how that story unfolded what were some of the lessons learned there yeah so so you know the, the next year so the lessons learned, we try to mitigate. So we brought in somebody the second year who was internal and who had a lot of street cred, you know, amongst the teachers. And uh, they, they started, you know, teaching in the program. They're our math person. But we soon realized that it had nothing to do with this person, but we wanted to change the perception to show this is very rigorous, you know, it's very math focused. And then the math became the central driver of the program and the way we split kids and divide them up, I mean, those, those kind of things that are the things that handcuff us as big schools anyways with scheduling started to handcuff us as well. So we try to mitigate it by getting that person. Yes, it helped because it maybe gave us more street cred. But um, I would say the, the major lessons to learn are you've got to have people coming in and out of the space. Otherwise, it's just they don't know what exists over there and they're going to come to their own conclusions. So we had some teachers who were able to teach in the space you know, when it wasn't being used, that was helpful. We had the kids also filtering into other classes as well. So it wasn't entirely like they're just in this program because they went to their language classes outside of the program. That also gave us time internally as a team to really plan these, you know, connected experiences. But I will say one of the most interesting learnings, this is why I will say, don't give the critics too big of a voice. You want to hear what they have to say. But sometimes the critics are the biggest critics because they actually want in, in the program. <laughs> and one of the biggest critics uh, of our program became a teacher in the program in its uh, third year. I went back to visit, it was a fourth year because you know I, I had moved on. Um, and I was like, wow, that's interesting. What's that teacher doing here? Oh, they're, they're part of the program now. That would, that would as well, right? Either. either or the whole time it was just a way of them expressing that you know they felt they were doing cool things and wanted an opportunity to do more of those and so the teachers were, were split was it a shared resource or or when, they, when you say they came into the space did they just use the space for their their, their own curriculum or, or their shared resources and how did that work 
Yeah, so it was mainly just to experience what the space is like because it was quite flexible. We had kind of movable walls. We had like a built-in kind of semi-amphitheater that was in the space as well. So it was just an opportunity for them um, to, if they were teaching elective types of classes, uh, you know, and maybe it was like film production, you know, it was a, a nice space to be able to do that in. Um, so it didn't have to necessarily relate to the curriculum that we're teaching, but it was just an opportunity for them to experience the space as well. Because the idea of that was we were trying to sample out, you know, and prototype, you know, the space, the way we organized curriculum, the way that teachers got together and planned. The idea was that we were prototyping that in that space so that then it could be kind of scaled across and looking at, well, where, where can we leverage some of these points? Um, and so, you know, in the high school, uh, currently now, they have their own um, more flexible space. It's a community area. They have the teachers who collaborate together. They come together when they're sharing some big inquiries or doing some project launches. So um, it was a kind of a good uh, a way, a prototype uh, of doing things that they wanted to do that were a little bit more kind of innovative. And when they graduate, what do they graduate with? The equivalent, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know, is IS, um, ISB a IB school, is it an international school? What, what are they graduating with? Yep, so this is a, a middle school program. So it went, it actually extended on in high school and then um, the, it, it had a less of a reach in high school because I think, you know, parents were a little bit more apprehensive, um, you know, because they are thinking about university. But kids will still go, go away with a, like IB diploma because um, at the end they can take IB or AP. That's just the way the kind of school is structured. So whatever the requirements are for the AP um, classes, they would still have to meet those requirements or the IB classes um, as well. And so we were still able to put, you know, a transcript together. Uh, for these students, and these students got in the you know their universities of their of their choices. There was no complaint from parents um, in terms of you know schools being able to understand. They still took the the test as well. And you know I've interviewed some students uh, as well just because during COVID I was like, hey, we got some more time. Let's find out you know how these students who are in our program how they're doing. And one of the biggest, the coolest insights I got from a student is I said, you know, how is, how is Futures Academy, you know, really, you know, impacted you? And he said, well, you know, remember that project that we did uh, back in middle school and we were trying to develop, they're trying to develop like this, this uh, exhaust, uh, this tube for your exhaust on your car to lower the pollution, right? Which you know, they already have stuff like that, right? And it's, you know, it's, uh, you have some catalytic converter, you know, in your engine that's helping that. But, you know, we let the kids take it to their, to their conclusion. And they're like, so excited about this. They designed it and made the 3D. And, and, you know, I'm like, well, did it work? And he said, no, it didn't work at all. You know, and even our parents were like, this might kill you if you actually try to, try to do this experiment in the garage. But they were so excited about it. They then went on high school to work with a team in trying to help the school go more green. And the whole bus fleet um, is now electric. And they had a big part in that. And I said, that's amazing. They said, well, I'm not finished. They said when they went on to their final year, it was a senior year in high school. They had an opportunity to go to Spain. And they had to take on community projects. And this particular student took on the project because they, they spoke four languages at this point. And now this student uh, saw that the Chinese population was a little bit isolated from the rest of the population. And I said, okay, well, what did you do about it? He said, well, I I'd always loved cooking. And so he combined cooking, he combined language, and he brought the Spanish 
people uh, in the community inside the Chinese homes for the Chinese people to cook for them, he translated it and facilitated a dialogue between them and vice versa with the uh, Chinese people going in the Spanish homes. And he said a lot of that, the foundation because of the projects that he did, you know, back in, back in the middle school program. <laughs> I mean, I don't know many adults who can connect, you know, with, you know, those kinds of bridges or using those kinds of bridges. That's amazing. And, and, and that's, that's the kind of person you want to hire, identifying a need, finding a solution to it, building a bridge that works again between, between, between you know, between the gaps. Um, and, and this goes back to what you were saying about the universities. What, what have they been saying, the universities? Um, how, how have they been um, reacting? Uh, what are they looking for from your experience? It's hard because on one hand, they'll pay lip service to a lot of like, hey, we're looking for this adaptable type of learner, somebody who has a store. Um, and then you, you also see too, you know, the, the focus on the test and yet they don't have anything other than, okay, here's your GPA, your SAT score, and then a, one question or something that they ask you on a personal statement. So I, I will still say that there is a long way to go. There is what you probably have heard of a master's transcript consortium, you know, and that is a network of uh, schools. I will say, I think people are looking for now because opposition where everybody's got one and it doesn't guarantee you it. You know the job of your dream um you know it's your skills right yes we're not we are still saying university is very important but if you don't have a skill set if you just have it's not going to um that job you want and even worse you might be now a hundred thousand us dollars in debt which i know a lot of people are when they come out of university and they you're not starting you know <laughs> starting your your job life on the right foot there <laughs> And so how, because they have this uh, application where you've got your grades and sometimes your SATs and personal statement, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty, pretty common and banal. How, how do you showcase everything that's been done in these projects? How, what is the best way for a university admissions officer to know who you are when they're probably, probably only spending, what, seven minutes on each application? How do you solve that problem? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you have a story. So the personal statement I think is big because, you know, even from every admissions council we heard from, they want a story, you know, they want you to be able to tell some kind of story and they don't want a bunch of extracurriculars, you know, Hey, I did this amount of community service hours. I played this many sports, you know, like all, everybody has that they're looking for some kind of story. So, you know, I think at the very least in the personal statement, that you have seven minutes is what is your story? Like what was your passion or interest? How did that progress? How did you use that, you know, to make, to make an impact somewhere? And I think that will, that will set you, you know, aside from all the other people who had high GPAs, high SAT scores. And I don't know if they can just incorporate a little link there. Officer had one minute to spend. And if that link just went to a portfolio of their work in the same way in which, you know, now you might put in a CV, like, hey, check out a portfolio of my work. Um, I think in the same way that I think that's also helpful as well. And um, I think that would, you know, help to make a stronger case for this type of learning. Kyle, I'm going to open this up to anything else that you think would be valuable to share or, or thoughts that are on your mind or things that you've been thinking about lately or projects <laughs> that you have, anything right now. 
I don't know when this is. This is probably going to be aired, what, a month from now, two months from now? Uh, maybe, maybe a week from now. A week from now. Hey, I like that. I like that schedule. Well, what's quite relevant right now, and this big question on my mind, my big inquiry is, you know, how do we help equip schools? And to me, I'm especially looking at school leaders because, you know, they have the ability to make some of these bigger changes. How do we equip them? with the questions, you know, to ask in the community to really feel confident to make some of these changes. Because I don't think we need any more books that say we need to make these changes. I think we more books of like, here's how to make the changes. So um, I'm starting this, you know, book study. We'll see what happens. Um, there's already about 30 different leaders who are, who are in it. It's free. It's going to be, you know, the first few chapters of my book, starting from what's the vision, what's the graduate profile of the kind of student we want to produce we have currently how can we change scheduling um, teachers collaborate together and learning experiences to make this happen and my hope is that coupled with this experience with some videos and a community more importantly that can discuss here's how we're doing it, here's how we're doing it, here's how we're doing it then it'll put more you know more of these leaders to be confident with that so that's kind of my big project now so you've got a book out tell us more about that yep well, so the book is called Power of Simple, and uh, you can find it on Amazon. It's an ebook, um, or you can you know order a copy of it. Uh, I th I think it's great for leadership teams to work with it. So four or five people spread across you know leadership team, just to make sure that they're asking the right questions moving forward. Um, and again, that's you know what I mentioned the book study, which I'm hoping to connect a larger group of innovators together and using that book kind of as a springboard um, as well. Um, so that's, that is just a little bit of my journey, um, you know, and our journey through Futures Academy, some major mistakes that we made, you know, uh, so you can avoid those same kind of mistakes as well. And, uh, the, the key kind of questions to, to ask. And then, you know, for anybody who's looking for teachers, uh, they're, if they want to, so that's kind of the leadership strand. If anyone's looking for how, well, how do these teachers design these learning experiences, um, I'm also working with teachers across, you know, a number of different districts and schools uh, to help co-design um, learning experiences that really create more socially, emotionally, globally aware citizens. How do people get a hold of you? Where do they find you? If you want them to find you, assuming. <laughs> I do want them to find me. Yeah. Uh, it's transformschool.com um, is the website, first of all. So transformschool.com. And there's a lot of good resources there for you. Um, if you want to get in touch with me personally, um, I'm at Kyle Wagner at transformschool.com. So Kyle Wagner at and T-R-A-N-S-F-O-R-M school.com. Uh, Thank you so much, Kyle. Really appreciate everything. I mean, I, I love the, the fact that, you know, there's ideas there, but also real practical lessons that, that people can start thinking about because you're right. There's enough about we need to, but now it's about how and trading stories and figuring out how that fits within the context. So it's super informative. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for the, the opportunity. And, you know, you are, you are doing it too, you know? <laughs> so thanks for the work that you're, you're doing. This has been the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud. Thank you so much to Kyle Wagner on a great show. Really moved my thinking. Carl Milson will be coming up soon on our next podcast. He is the initiator of the Rebel Teacher Network, a fantastic group of podcasters uh, that I'm so honored to be a part of. Carl is a deep thinker, and we're going to have a great conversation, I'm sure. 
and we also have Tim Logan on the horizon. Tim is a, a great believer in bringing Agile into the classroom, into the education system, into our way of thinking and principles, and I can't wait for that conversation. So join us soon. Leave a five-star rating if you like the show on your favorite podcast channel. And in the meantime, please check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design, and see you soon. Bye.